This week's podcast is probably going to be a little longer, but I promise you it'll be worth it. The content that is in this week's What the Policy Corner is really important, so I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to Let's Talk Tennessee. I am Jackie Cancier, your state chair for the Tennessee chapter of National Council on Severe Autism's National Grassroots Network. And this is your weekly podcast of all things advocacy, news, and policy concerning severe autism and related disorders. First, the news. It's 10K renewals time. So look in your mailbox, see if you find that letter. Please, if you do, sign it and send it back. If you didn't get a letter or if you're concerned about your renewal, please call 10Care Connect at 855-259-0701. You can also go to their website at 10careconnect.tn.gov. If you're having any issues with your 10Care renewals, please contact Tennessee Justice Center. They've set up a benefits line for you. Just go to tnjustice.org forward slash need dash hour dash help. In other news, this past week, we did do a webinar exploring advocacy, finding and refining your voice. If you didn't get a chance to catch it then, it's now on our YouTube as well as our website with the hyperlinked slides available to download. Every voice matters, and we hope you'll find a comfort zone to share your lived experience after watching that webinar. Also, Tuesday, January 30th at 3.30 Central, Dr. Joshua Ryan-Smith of Vanderbilt will be presenting a webinar for us on catatonia in pediatric and neurodiverse populations. Don't miss this one. My own daughter suffered for years without a proper diagnosis of this because there are just too few doctors who study it and can even recognize it. Is this something that might be impacting your child? Know the signs. Know the difference in treatment. Join us for the webinar on January 30th. Also, Disability Pathfinder is hosting a webinar by Dr. Bruce Davis called Navigating Support for Dual Diagnosis, which is IDD and mental health. Attend this webinar to learn more about navigating support services for the unique needs of the subpopulation. It will be February 1st at 1130 a.m. And the General Assembly kicked off this week. So what's the news there? This first week in our assembly session, our legislators did not actually ask to reject federal education funding altogether, but instead asked that the federal requirements be changed or removed. One mom, Mary Bush, publicly had something to say about that on WBIR. Let's have a listen. You know, the laws are in place for a reason. Sandy Bush says her son, Cam, is one of those requirements. He's cognitively about 18 months old. He obviously can't just walk into the school on his own. He has seizures. And Sandy says those laws help hold school districts accountable. But when it's not followed, it's very worrisome uh, to send him to school. But if my representative spent a day trying to take care of my son, or even, you know, observing what we do, but also maybe even stepping in, uh, I think they would be shocked. Who else is with Mary? How many of us have felt if we could just have them come to our home for one day, whether it was the MCOs or the legislators or whoever might be gaslighting us or not understanding, just come here, just come here for one day. And I really do feel like they'd all be just so shocked, right? We've all felt like Mary. Thank you, Mary, for speaking out. 
The school vouchers debate kicked up right away this week. The vouchers currently in place were just a pilot program initially marketed as helping low-income families access quality private schools. The pilot program vouchers were provided to Davidson, Shelby, and then Hamilton County. Now that we're talking about expanding vouchers, of course, we want to know how that pilot program has been doing. WBIR reports. Preliminary data from the Department of Education shows students in voucher programs have performed worse than their public school counterparts. And what did the Tennessee Department of Education or Commissioner have to say about that report when the senators were asking about this? The results aren't um, anything to write home about, is my understanding. But at the end of the day, the parents are happy with this new learning environment for their students. Parents are happy. They're happy their kids are getting less prepared for college than if they weren't on a voucher. I want more info. What is the demographics of these parent surveys? What exactly are they happier about? Is there anything that they're happy about that could be improved in the public school setting? Either way, thank goodness for the voice of reason from Senator Akbari that performance matters. We want the parents to feel great about it, the students, but we also want the students that are taking public dollars to be performing either at or higher than uh, the schools, the, the, those students that are in traditional public schools. Honestly, it would take far longer than a podcast link to discuss all things vouchers, but what we know so far from this first week's session is that there do seem to be some attempts to rebrand it and call it by a different name, as well as some deflection claiming it won't take public school funds, which will certainly need a whole lot more detail how they plan actually to pull that off. Also, we learned that even some legislators who are friendly towards the idea of expansion still are showing concerns by wanting to place income limits on them, including the speaker himself, or prohibit poor performing schools from accessing them, which makes sense. We will keep you all informed as it unfolds. All we know for sure is that we cannot support anything that threatens the protection of students with disabilities or of their quality of education. So unless we start hearing some major, concrete solutions to how whatever we're going to call this expansion will not harm students with disabilities, our position has not yet changed. We remain opposed, but always listening for that moment, if it ever comes, where our children with disabilities are factored into these discussions. We're going to switch things up this week, and I'm going to sandwich this week's What the Policy Corner in the middle of the podcast, because quite frankly, it's heavy. And I want to end with some sunshine and rainbows, which you're going to need after hearing this. Emotionally, it's been rough as I've researched trying to find answers to this glaring crisis for people with dual diagnosis, again, meaning intellectual and developmental disorders paired with behavioral disorders, especially if they have comorbidities. Just a fair warning, I'm about to throw a bunch of numbers at you, but the links will be in the show notes so you can do further research on your own. This is a really important topic, so I hope you'll stick with us. This week's What the Corner is why our dogs have more access to healthcare than some of our children. If my dog gets sick, I can take him to the vet. If my daughter, who is medically complex with a rare disease, profound autism, and challenging behaviors is sick, she can't go to a general ER because they don't have behavior staff to manage her behaviors. Often when she's sick, as she was this past week with a simple UTI, her body compensates. 
meaning her vitals are perfect. She doesn't have a fever. She doesn't feel pain as much as us, so she isn't complaining. And the only sign something is wrong is she's in a sudden, severe state of dangerous aggression and self-injury and, quite frankly, psychosis. ERs aren't set up to manage that. You have to stabilize the behavior crisis so that the general physicians can safely diagnose and treat the patient. We have psych hospitals. In fact, in Tennessee, we now have a network of walk-in mental health clinics. She can't go to those either, though, because they don't treat people who have profound IDD or who aren't medically cleared. If you're medically complex, you're never medically cleared. Those places aren't for her or for the dozens of other families who have reached out to me since our most recent crisis to share their very similar stories. So what places are there? Where do they go? According to Statista.com, in 2020, there were 1,806 facilities for inpatient psychiatric care in the country. 1,806 facilities, children like ours, would be denied access. The reality is there are 19 specialized inpatient units that accept patients with dual diagnosis in the entire country. 17 of those only treat children and adolescents. Two, Stonecrest in Detroit, Michigan, and Whippick at UPMC in Pittsburgh are the only to also treat adults for short-term psychiatric stabilization. I truly hope with everything in me that these numbers are wrong. I am continuing my research and hope to find more. For now, those are the numbers I found. It's sobering and devastating. General medical needs aside, which obviously people who are medically complex would need at a higher rate, people with dual diagnosis are at a two to three times greater rate of experiencing an emergent crisis state of behaviors. Yet there is nowhere to treat them. Even in the off chance that you're able to find an admission somewhere, a 2018 study of more than 66,000 adults showed that people with a dual diagnosis were 1.7 times more likely to require readmission within 30 days compared to those who just had a mental health disorder, but not an intellectual or developmental disorder. But why? According to an article from STAT this past week, that indicates, quote, poor quality care or lousy care coordination or both. All those shortcomings means that those with IDD don't live as long as other people. Research overwhelmingly confirms the health disparities of the subpopulation lead to poor quality of life, poor health outcomes, and shortened lifespans. And this has been being studied for decades. And yet parents are still being left abandoned to manage complex, intense, dangerous crises alone with no professional medical support, doing their very best and risking their own lives in the process to keep their children alive and stabilize at home often their only option. In my daughter's case, due to her condition, she enters into these emergent crises about once or twice a year. I need there to be a safe place for her to be treated and stabilized during these times. There's 50 other weeks of the year that she doesn't need that intensive stabilization care. If I'm unable to find an option to stabilize her in those one to two times a year she needs that kind of care, I may have to place her in an ICF to live. The lack of intermediate short-term intensive stabilization options is forcing long-term placements for many families. Ideally, she'd have access to a short-term stabilization and then return home to her community and her chickens and bunnies and the dog that she absolutely adores. That 
option is becoming fainter. Each year we go through this experience repeatedly let down by the entire system. I am calling on all parent advocates, patient advocates, providers, and disability organizations to prioritize ending this abhorrent health disparity and joining into a collective effort of problem solving. There is absolute brilliance among our ranks. Please let's join together to end this senseless discrimination and subhuman treatment of people profoundly impacted by intellectual and developmental disorders and challenging behaviors. It really just is what the... Whew, told you it was going to be heavy, and that's not even the half of it. I'll be adding more in coming weeks. But for now, let's switch gears to the sunshine and rainbows I promised you'd need. Some good news of those that are working to solve the problem. Maybe we can learn something from them. And then a couple local rock stars that really deserve a positive shout out. The first is New Jersey has awarded contracts to manage what they're calling emergency capacity services, ECS programs. ECS will specifically cater to people with IDD, including those with acute behavioral needs requiring immediate residential and day program support. They are requiring providers to accept admissions 24-7, 365 days a year, and adhere to a strict no-reject policy without exception. The services are intended to be short-term, spanning no more than 60 days. Very well done, New Jersey. Additionally, Georgia is also restoring faith in humanity with a $7 million investment in a 16-bed crisis center for people with disabilities coming to Macon in 2025. The new Crisis Stabilization Diagnostic Center will be the first in the country to offer focused crisis and specialty care for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. In our final two very positive shout outs, the Vanderbilt police deserve to be commended for their absolutely perfect and professional response when we were in need last week. They brought a team, three cars total. They did not rush to judgment. They were the very first police ever to ask to see my conservatorship papers. This let them know what my daughter's conditions are, that she is not capable of criminal intent, that this was a medical event, and that I had the authority to make medical decisions for her. They treated her and me with dignity and kindness. They asked what kinds of things she liked and didn't. They did not crowd her or overwhelm her more. They kept their distance and one at a time would open my driver's door a crack just to try to start to build a rapport with her based on things that she liked. They took their time to really try to A, attempt to calm her down, though that didn't really work, and B, let her know that they were friends, that they were there to help her and not to hurt her. They knew that they were going to probably need to get hands-on with her, so they did attempt to get medical staff so that it would be documented. Though that was unavailable, just that they attempted to get it documented put me at ease that this was a team that cared about least restrictive force and my daughter's safety. From start to finish, they were total perfection. My final rainbows and sunshine shout out goes to the Vanderbilt Psychiatric Assessment Services. My daughter wasn't admitted because they were able to stabilize her on the unit in just a few hours. But they treated us with so much kindness that it brought me to tears repeatedly. I was overwhelmed with gratitude for being treated as a human and being heard. They didn't over-catastrophize the situation. 
but they didn't minimize it either. They coordinated with her actual psychiatrist and even provided me a short respite away from the hospital as they treated her, and they kept every promise that they made. We made it home safely without incident thanks to them. So thank you to Vanderbilt Pass. Long episode this week. We had tons to cover. I've given you lots to think about and a really audaciously big issue to start considering how to solve. I mean it when I say let's work together on this. Our children truly deserve solutions. See you next week.